Richard Raymond is a true storyteller who, as a kid, found meaning and belonging through films and the cinema. He spent his life trying to replicate that same sense of belonging in the world around him. But it wasn't until Hoffman that he realized his greatest sense of belonging was to himself. And as a result, his artistic voice has never been clearer. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Liz Severin, and on this podcast, we engage in conversation and learn from Hoffman graduates. We'll dive deep into their journeys of self-discovery and explore how the process transformed their internal and external worlds. They share how their spirit and light now burn brighter in all directions of their lives. Their Love's Everyday Radius. Hello, I am so excited to welcome Richard Raymond to the podcast today. Hello, it's lovely to be on this podcast. It's wonderful. Thank you. Absolutely. Richard, I'd love for you just to introduce yourself to the audience. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do in the world. I live in America. I live in Los Angeles. I'm originally from the UK. I am a film director and a writer and a producer. I graduated from Hoffman last October, so about eight months ago. You know, I live and breathe cinema. I'm a father uh, to two amazing young children, a daughter called Rumi and a son called Bodhi. I'm married to the most amazing woman I've ever met in my life called Nusha, whose family are from Iran. And, and it's just this amazing, I'm at this amazing place in my life where I'm post the process and I feel like the whole world has opened up and I'm just so excited to kind of talk about my childhood and talk about my journey to America and my journey to Hoffman and, and how it's really profoundly, positively affected and changed me. I always love to hear about, especially when I speak to artistic folks, where that love, so for you, the love of cinema, the love of filmmaking, that art, where that began? Could you give us a little insight into childhood and all that good stuff? I think it came from a need to have escapism. I just never felt growing up in England that I truly was in a place where I belonged. And I would always just escape, <laughs> escape to the movies. I, my dad you would always take me to the cinema. And like most people born in the late 70s, they would go with their parents to go and see Star Wars and, and all these movies. And then later as a, as a young teenager discovering films, science fiction films by James Cameron. So it was always this need to want to escape. I would understand the language of cinema. I, and I would keep watching it and keep watching it and understand how visually it was talking in a language that was a quiet language, but it was a language that meant something on a deeper level to me. And I just used to get totally lost in watching films. And it meant a lot to me. I was really unsure of myself as a young child. And there was a lot of turmoil growing up around me and my family and constantly being taken out of school and put into different schools for various reasons. And just the consistency that that safe place was watching films. And um, I think my love of it began from there. And then, you know, growing up in England, you've, you always feel that you're 
a long way away from from that world of Hollywood or cinema. And then this amazing realization that actually a lot of the films that I loved growing up, whether they were the original Richard Donner Superman movies or, or Tim Burton's Batman that you see when you're a kid, they were actually shot in England and not too far from my house. And then I realized there's a bus that went from my house to very close to where the studios, which they were called Pinewood Film Studios and Shepparton Film Studios, where these movies were shot. And I realized that Hollywood actually was actually not too far from me. This was in my backyard, frankly. And uh, I suddenly felt that the window was open, the door was open a little bit, and it was something that felt real. And I wanted to discover more about it. And take us back a little bit more to notice, I mean, as a, as a young kid, were you aware that what films, what the cinema was bringing you was an escape? Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I had a very protected childhood. My family, we moved a few times, but essentially we lived in a house in the middle of nowhere in the countryside in England. And I, I wasn't really exposed to people from different parts of the world and stories from different parts of the world. And I think that cinema really opened the world up for me. My family had emigrated to England from India. And then themselves, they had emigrated from India from Iraq. They were Iraqi Jews. And they were called, I think their nicknames, the, the people, they were called Baghdadi Jews. And the Jewish people were exiled from Iraq a long time ago. And they all fled to India, where they started this thriving Jewish community in, at the time it was called Bombay. And then when my grandmother she had lived there for you know over 50 years teaching math. She was a math teacher. And my father, when he was a young child, they left and emigrated to the UK. So my, my brothers and I have, I have three brothers and one of four. We would live in this isolated country house, but one part of my family would talk with Indian accents. And so I knew there was more to life than what you know the British Hertfordshire countryside. And I just think the films really opened the door for that for me. And I, a lot of my education was based, early education was based on these films and seeing, seeing a world outside of the UK. And at that time, did you know that this is what you wanted to do with your life, your career? Or was it just this escape that then kind of grew? It happened quite organically. In the UK, when you're, you know, when you're in high school, and um, which in the UK we call secondary school, they give you what's known as work experience in your last year of high school. And they basically select a company that's close to the school that the students will leave for two weeks to go and do work experience. And my teacher had got me two weeks at British Gas. And there was no way I was going to work for British Gas. I was just, just not interested at all. And when I had found out that these movies were shot at Pinewood Film Studios, I wrote Pinewood a letter. And I actually wrote them about two or three letters asking if I could have work experience there. And no one wrote back to me. I, I didn't even know who I was writing to at the time. But then I read a story by Steven Spielberg on how he had snuck into Universal Studios when he was a kid. And I thought, oh, well, if Spielberg did that, I can do that. So I, I lied to my headmaster and I told him that Pinewood have given me a two-week work experience. And so my headmaster canceled the two weeks at British Gas and said, oh, great, you can, okay, so you're working at Pinewood. And I told my dad that I had work experience at Pinewood and he said, oh, I'll drive you there every day. I said, fantastic. 
And so my dad, I remember wearing a suit, <laughs> which was, you know, oversized suit. I'm 16, I'm 15 years old. And my dad drives me to the gates of Pinewood Film Studios. Now, at the time, there were two gates. There was the main gate and there was a side gate. And the side gate was where all the workers kind of went in. And I said, oh, I said to my dad, well, you just dropped me there. And he literally dropped me at the gate and drove away and said, okay, have a great day. <laughs> I'm 15 years old. And I walked up to the security guard and I had this entire elaborate story planned in my head, which was I was going to tell the security guard, my dad worked in one of the stages and I'm here to meet him. I, I had this all worked out. And as I walked up to the security guard, ready to tell him the story so I could get into Pinewood, he just waved at me and said, good morning and opened the gate. <laughs> and I just walked in. And that was the beginning of my career in film. Bless that security guard. Uh, now, Security has completely revamped itself since those days in 1990 or 1991. But I, I remember I walked into the film studios. I didn't know a soul. I didn't know anything. And I just kind of hung out. And at lunchtime, all these people went into the cafeteria. I was just hanging out in the cafeteria. And I would just start meeting people. Because everyone was like, why is this 15-year-old here in a suit? This is weird. And my dad's tie, I remember I was wearing my father's tie. And... um. I would just meet people and start talking to them. And because I love cinema and film crews love cinema, it was just very easy to, to make friends. And eventually I met this older American man who I at the time had no idea who he was, but he was a very famous film director called Blake Edwards. And Blake Edwards said to me, and Blake Edwards is famous for the Pink Panther movies. And uh, Blake Edwards said to me, hey, kid, why don't you, you can come on our, our set. We're shooting. It was a film called Return, or no, Son of the Pink Panther with Roberto Benigni, who would go on to win the Academy Award for Best Actor and Best Director for Life is Beautiful a few years later. But he was doing a remake of the Pink Panther movies with Roberto Benigni. And I said, sure. And then I, I'll never forget the smile, I can still feel the smile when he walked, when Blake Edwards walked me onto the set. It was stage D at Pinewood Studios. I remember looking at the wooden, the old wooden floors, and I remember seeing these big kind of electricity, you know, wires for the lights and the set. Obviously, when you walk onto a movie set, the set is backwards. So all you're seeing is like the, the wooden facade of the back of the, the movie set. And he walked me onto the set and it was a hospital set. And I'll never forget the smile. I just was smiling. And it was the most magical day because I'm, I'm there in my suit. I took my jacket off. My dad's got a picture of me that someone took of me uh, by the camera. But I'll always remember the, the DOP, the director of photography was Dick Pope very famous DP. And there was a scene that they were shooting where there was only enough room for the camera operator and the focus puller. And the camera was right in the corner of the set. And they were filming just a character walking into the hospital room and then, and then walking out again. It's a very simple shot. But he's, the cameraman could see how excited I was to be there. And he told the focus puller, Oh, I'll pull focus on this. I'll be by myself. Richard can stand in your place. So it was just me and the cameraman in the corner of this set while all the rest of the film crew was out the room. And I heard the director, Blake Edwards, shout action. And I just watched the scene from the point of view of the camera take place. And that was it. I mean, I, I, mean, I was hooked anyway, but that was putting Blake Edwards 
put me and the director of photography put me in the shoes of the place of a director as a 15 year old child behind the camera in a scene and I got it. It was literally like a jigsaw going click. And I was like, that was it. And I did that for two weeks and it was the greatest moments of my life when I was a kid and everything changed from that moment on with me. And my father could see that this was something and my mom and they fully supported me. I said, I don't want to go back to school. (laughs) I want to keep working. And I I have no idea why they said yes, but I mean, probably because I was just so relentless in my pursuit of this, but they let me just leave school. I have no education. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Um, I have no formal education and I never really fit into school anyway, but after Pink Panther, I would just meet people working on other film sets. This is work experience. This is just free work as an intern. I'm just showing up. I'm hanging out. I'm making tea and coffee. I'm watching. I'm not really doing anything. I worked on a film called The Secret Garden, directed by Angesca Holland. I worked on The Fifth Element, directed by Luc Besson. I worked on Interview with the Vampire, directed by Neil Jordan. Shadowlands, directed by Richard Lord Richard Attenborough. And that film in particular was an amazing experience because I was a huge Anthony Hopkins fan. And I always remember just Anthony Hopkins, who everyone said, called him Tony, came up to me and said, have you met our Dickie yet? I was like, no. And he said, come here. And Anthony Hopkins took me on the set of Shadowlands, introduced me to Richard Attenborough. And we just stood there, just those two and me just having a chat for like 20 minutes. And it was amazing. And everyone was really, really kind. I think, I think a lot of it is to do with that, Back then, there was no internet. There was no mobile phones in the early 90s. So everyone was anonymous and everyone was a lot kinder. So I was really, really grateful. And that was my film school and my parents. And then, you know, eventually, then I just started getting paid for making tea and coffee and sweeping the floors. I think my plan was if I make really bad tea and coffee, I'll get promoted. Didn't happen too quickly, but that, that was my plan. But that was the beginning of it. What I love hearing in this, though, is just starting out feeling like you know, not fitting into home. England's not really my home. Finding some safety, some escape in films to finally landing on this film studio. Was there a sense of I'm home or this, you know, I I found part of myself? Yeah, it was, that's exactly how it felt at the time. It's a really powerful feeling to know that you connect to something so young. And it's a really powerful feeling to know that you belong. I think it was less that it was my home and it was more that I belonged there and more that people wanted me there and that I connected with people who loved the same thing that I loved. I think that's what it was because I'm going to some, you know, public secondary school in North London where there's a lot of bullies and there's a lot of people just at that point in most people's life, why should they? They don't know what they want to do. But I I knew and and it was much more of a sense of belonging. And it's something I, I and it's something I seek to this very day. It's very interesting. Tell me more about that feeling, feeling like you're, you don't belong, searching for the belonging today. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, I have a lot of friends. I'm very blessed with knowing a lot of people. But when I, when I meet someone who has that same love of cinema, there's that connection. When I have someone who understands that path or that sense of wanting to be part of storytelling in a cinematic way, you can't help but feel a connection. Definitely being in that environment just gave me a sense of being wanted 
and it would only be later where I knew what that was and where that was coming from. But at the time, it was just, it was very powerful. I remember feeling happy for the first time in my life in being in that environment. And it's just interesting how I, how I still chase it to this day, because I, I think a lot of work of someone who's a writer, someone who's a director is quite solitary. I'm here in my office, you know, I'm working on a variety of film projects, but you do do them by yourself, unless you're collaborating once the scripts are done, or if I'm collaborating with a writer, but a lot of my time is spent alone and building to the point where you're on a set again with other people. And so you're constantly trying to get back to that place of being surrounded by people that are like you in terms of your work. And there's a lot of love in that for sure. Yeah. Well, and tell me about America, because I know that you had a box when you were a kid that said USA on it. Is that correct? Yes. That's definitely the influence of the cinema. My dad had an office in the house and he used to have these folder boxes and I took one and I remember drawing on it the words USA and anything I could find from America, I would put in this box. So Hubba Bubba Bubblegum, MC Hammer stickers, vanilla ice stuff, like really silly things. My dad went to a trip with me to Los Angeles when we were when I was 14. And so things I got from my early America trips, I would keep in that box. And I and I always knew that I would end up in America. I always knew. And I even remember having this vision of living on a beach in America, in Los and it's where I now live. I now live in Malibu in Los Angeles. So it's funny how that manifested itself into reality. But I distinctly remember having that having these visions of living on a beach as a young child and needing to be out in America. That's where the films were made. And it just felt like a much less repressed society than the UK. And I love England, don't get me wrong. My family are there. The country was, was really, really kind to me. And England has some of the best film crews in the world. I mean, it's an incredible place to work. But I never felt like I emotionally was attached to that country. And I think it was because my family were not from England. My dad's side of the family were from India. So they were immigrants to that country. And then they were not themselves from India. They had immigrated from Iraq. So it just felt that England for me was a stepping stone to somewhere else. And it felt the progression was to go to somewhere that would embrace how I felt emotionally. And it always just felt like inertly that would be the United States. And also like the early trips I had when I came here were, were, were just kind of really impactful for me when my dad took me to the United States. It just felt that this was, it just felt that this was a big country and you could kind of be anything you wanted to be when you were out here. And that really spoke to me. Well, and you mentioned finding belonging, right, on on the film sets with the film crew, anyone that loved cinema. What did it feel like when you finally moved out here to America? It was hard because you haven't got that protection of your family. You're by yourself. And initially, you, I was not on a work visa, so I couldn't work out here. And it, it was difficult, but it was, it was really exciting. Before I came to America, I actually lived in Australia for a couple of years where I seemed to have picked up a tiny bit of the accent, but that was more about just having a kind of a, a young childhood. But even when I lived in Australia, day one, I went to Fox Studios in Sydney and got a job working at the film studios there. So, so I was always following my passion for film. 
And then from there, then I moved to Los Angeles and I started actually at the Sundance Film Festival. Most of my first friends that I knew in Los Angeles, I met lining up to see movies at Sundance. You would meet a lot of friends in the, in the lines uh, for movies at Sundance. And so that was my jumping off point. And it just took time and persistence and tenacity of just staying in America and constantly every three months going home and then coming back and renewing my work visa and then, and then finally getting a work visa and being out here full time. But it, it, was, it was definitely hard, but it, was, it always felt much more exciting than the UK and the conversations were much more exciting, especially with the types of films I wanted to make. In the UK, when you're having these meetings with films, it's, it's really difficult. And the British cinema embraces a different type of film, unless you're in that upper escalon of, of prestige filmmakers at that time, which I was not. It's very hard to make ambitious films that have heart and, and want to say something. And in America, it's just much more open to you there. It felt like the place I belonged, but there was that distance between you know, bringing it really back to talking about Hoffman, I felt comfortable having distance between myself and my childhood physically and emotionally. And I just felt like getting away from that felt like a good and a safe option for me. Well, how did you make the transition then from working on film sets to kind of finding your own artistic voice and pursuing whether that was writing or producing for yourself? Well, I would befriend the film crews on the sets that I was having work experience on. And I would ask them if they would come around to my house on Sundays for a few hours and help me shoot a film. And then I would go to the, the warehouses where they got the film equipment called Panavision. And I would befriend them and they would give me 35 mil or 60 millimeter cameras from the shelves. And when you're shooting a film back then, you would use like a 400 or a 900 foot mag of 35 mil, but they would never use all of it. They would only shoot like half of it and they would dispose of the half that they hadn't shot on. It's called a short end. And so I would just collect them at the end of every day of filming. And so I had two fridges at home full of film stock. And so I would use this unused film stock from the films I was interning and working on in the day and I would use that to shoot my own very bad films <laughs> on weekends with a couple of the crew members that would be kind enough to come around to my house for fish and chips on, on a Sunday. And the early films I made were horrifically bad, terrible, awful. My dad still got some of them on tape and loves to show them to me. But they were truly bad. And they were ripoffs of anything that I was seeing you know, on, in the cinema. I hadn't found my own voice. And I truly felt that because I hadn't gone to school properly I, and I didn't have an education, I felt like I was really stunted with what I could say, how I would articulate it, and just my sense of knowing. But at the same time, the, the balance has shifted because I had this inert talent for the language of cinema. And I had a skill set of knowing about all the equipment and knowing about the lenses and knowing about everything on that side. But I never found in my early days a way to match it with what I wanted to say. And that was because I didn't know who I was. And that took a long time. I remember my early, and you know, I used to throw parties in London. And this is how I raised the money for my short films when I was younger. I realized that a lot of people that you would meet, they didn't really care about the movies. They just cared about when's the premiere. So I would throw monthly premieres for a movie that didn't exist. <laughs> I realized that no one really cared about the film. They just cared about wanting to go to a party. And I would charge everyone 20 pounds 
yeah, to go to my parties. And after a year of doing that, I had raised a lot of money in cash. And, and I spent it all making my short films. I remember my dad saying, are you sure you want to waste all this money? You could buy a house. I said, no, I, I went into this with the intention of I would have this money and I would make films with it. And that I, I'm not going to betray what I said that I would do. And I spent it all uh, making short films. But they were terrible. I'll be honest with you. You know, and it's really interesting. My first feature film was I shot it in 2013 and it was released in 2015. It was a feature film called Desert Dancer. You know, the actors were incredible. They were so dedicated. But I feel like I let them down as a director because I feel that the emotion of the film was a, was a bit manipulative and I felt that the film wore its heart on its sleeve in too broad a way and didn't just allow the drama of the film to kind of just breathe and, and explore what was a really fascinating story of freedom of expression. It's the story about an Iranian dancer in Iran, true story, who wanted to dance, but in Iran it's illegal to express yourself in Western styles of dance and he ends up putting on dance performances in the desert where the regime would not see him to his fellow students and eventually ended up fleeing to france and is now a star dancer in france and i and i really wanted to tell his story but even though the actors were just so brilliant and the dance sequences um, which were choreographed by akram khan who's an incredible dance choreographer were really something and still to this day there is incredible I just felt that the film as a whole, I, I let myself down. I let the story down. I know a lot of people might hear that and be like, oh, dude, you're being too hard on yourself. But I truly look at that and I was like, this is a kid who doesn't know what, how he wants to say what he wants to say and how he wants to say it. And what shifted for me was meeting my wife and having children. And all of a sudden, it wasn't about me. <laughs> uh, I wasn't thinking about myself anymore. And I didn't realize the profound shift that I had gone through until the following film. And that was a film called Souls of Totality, which was shot in 2017 with an actress called Tatiana Maslany. And it was shot during, it's the first film in cinema to be shot during a real solar eclipse. And so there's a sequence, an uncut sequence at the end that goes from uh, day to night to day again. It's, it's really something. But that was the film that I suddenly, just before, I remember just as we were setting up the camera, I felt very different. And I suddenly was just like, oh, this isn't about me. <laughs> I don't have anything to prove. I don't need to show with camera moves or fancy this or fancy that. I'm just going to tell this story and I'm going to get out the way. I remember just putting the camera back and not doing anything and just shooting the first scene really simply and allowing other people's voices to come in and collaborate with me and realizing how I wasn't threatened by that and realizing how much better it got when I let other people in. The film ended up being brilliant and I just remember how different I felt directing that film and how it wasn't like intentional. It was just like, no, no, this is how I've always wanted to do things. So I felt like I finally touched a part of who I truly was. And for the first time, I wasn't trying to emulate somebody I had seen when I was a child. I was actually using my unique voice and I was touching upon that and it felt truly fulfilling. That was when everything kind of shifted for me. But I definitely feel that becoming a dad had 
a lot to play with that and the realization that it wasn't it's not about me and um and you're here to service something you know a lot more profound than you and yeah and, and that that kind of shifted a lot for me well and then what brought you to hoffman to even sort of seeking out that type of work in your life at the period of time that you went I have to give it to my wife for pointing me in that direction. But I think what had happened was so many instances came up for me where I was just so deeply frustrated and felt deeply stuck. I had been chasing a career in the film industry for a very long time. Today I speak to you, I'm 45 years old. I've been doing this since I was 15. <laughs> That's insane. I just think to, to have spent that amount of time, you know, chasing this consistently. And I had seen many other people leapfrog and do great things. And yet I just felt like aside from the work that I was self-starting, no one was coming to me. No one wanted to work with me. All the projects I was doing, I had four projects in a row that I spent a lot of time and a lot of money on, years. And I'd got cast with some incredible actors. I mean, I had had people like Tom Hardy and Benedict Cumberbatch and Evan Rachel Wood attached and wanting to work with me, but the films would ultimately collapse. I just remember the hopes and the aspirations, not just financially, but also just artistically, would all be crushed. And after five years of consistently being crushed and just having this deep sense of frustration, I realized that I was really blocked and that maybe the problem was me. <laughs> and I wanted to take, and my wife would always say this, that you need to take responsibility for these failures in a sense, like these were your projects. And she was right. And I also think like my daughter turned around to me and, and she said, daddy, are you ever going to make another film again? And I was just like, the way a child just cuts through all the bullshit and just gets straight to the point. I was like, oh my God. And I felt like, a, I was like, oh my God, am I, am I no longer the breadwinner in our family? Like, what am I doing to support my family? I felt like I was failing and I felt anger and I felt frustrated. And my wife could see it. And she said, you need to talk to some people that have been to something called the Hoffman. I spoke to a couple of friends that had been to Hoffman and alumni at the Hoffman, they treat Hoffman like fight club. You never really talk about fight club. And this is like, you know, they would just give me an impression of it's a place you're going to go and it's going to be the greatest thing you'll do for yourself. And it will really help you begin again and it will sort everything out. You need to do it. So I didn't know what it was going in, but I said, okay. And I went in, with total naivete, I didn't read up on it. I think it's almost as if I pushed it to one side and I was like, I'll get to that when it's in front of me. And even though I was filling in the questionnaire and doing all the pre-process work, I wasn't really taking it in. I wasn't present. I wasn't truly considering what it was. I was putting it off. And that again is a reflection of just how blocked I was for all of my love and enthusiasm and positivity about my past and about the projects I want to do one by one, they would all fall. And what was left was just this shell. And it was really difficult. I wanted to do something. I wanted to make a change and I didn't know what it was, but, but that was what was pointed in my direction. And I was so grateful to Nusha for 
for doing that and for the friends that spoke so highly of Hoffman before I went there as well, because they were the ones who, who got me to go. So what was it like the first few days at Hoffman? Well, everyone, all my uh, classmates laugh. <laughs> if they're ever listening to this, they'll laugh again. But I, was, I showed up and I was like, okay, where's the spa? You know, I was like, I really thought there would be like some yoga, maybe some one-on-one meditation, some counseling. I had, you know, and then you're sat in a room and you're given a three-inch, four-inch thick binder and you're like, okay, the work begins. So um, it was a bit of a shock, to be honest. But if I'm going to do anything, I do it properly. And I was committed. I just went there with an open mind. I had no expectations. <laughs> going in totally naive but once it was clear what it was I was ready to learn and I think a big help was being cut off from the outside world and not having my phone and that was probably going in the most difficult thing and whenever I speak to anyone that's going to Hoffman it's always the thing that everyone talks about you know I'm not going to have my phone I'm not going to be able to talk to anyone for seven eight days what's that like and I think a lot of the anxiety about that is only before you go. When you're, when you're at Hoffman and it's gone because you're surrounded by 29 other students, you're all in it together and, and it's this incredible patchwork of support and everyone's on the same level. You don't really think about your phone at all. And I, I miss my kids very much and my wife. And I had a couple of pictures of them. I, I always look at night and I knew they were thinking of me. But, uh, but I was there to be a better dad. I was there to be a better human being. And as the days at Hoffman progressed, I realized, you know, how powerful this journey was that we were on and how the hard work that it took while you were at Hoffman was going to be really fruitful. And it felt like nothing else mattered. And I was doing it for, for myself. And by doing it for myself, I would emanate a much more positive light to the people I loved. And so I was doing it because my family have given me so much, you know, my wife and my kids, they give me so much. I, and I just felt like I need to do it for myself so I can be better for them. What was it like to dive back into childhood? Sometimes I know that, that even though students know that's what we're going to be doing, you know, the depths to which we do it can sometimes be disorienting. Yeah, well, you realize that everything that you thought was very surface initially. And then I think what Hoffman does so well is that it enables you to peel back the layers and not just be in awareness hell, but actually have compassion and understanding for who you actually are because of who you were as a child. And I, I never took the time. I never had the tools as well to, to be able to, to look at my past and actually remember, a lot of the amazing things about Hoffman is because you're so focused and cut off is that you actually remember things that you long ago forgot. And it was just a very, very fascinating time, really going back into the childhood and remembering and being a child again. And I think a lot of that is you're using your childhood name when you're at Hoffman. No one knows each other by their real names, so everyone's everyone's on the same level. And it was, I had the most incredible bit of synchronicity in the first minute I was at Hoffman. I grew up in a house, 44 Russell Lane in East Barnet in London. And just the numbers 44, I hadn't seen together since I left that childhood home. 
And I, I show up at Hoffman and they say, oh, your dormitory room, your room is, is in this building. And I went there and the numbers on the door were 44. And as soon as I saw that, I suddenly remembered of being at 44 Russell Lane as a five-year-old. And I, and I thought, wow, did, did someone at Hoffman know that? and do their research and then put me in this room. And I still to this day think that's what happened because it's too much of a powerful synchronicity. But I remember day one, minute one, having that realization and that sunk me deep into my childhood, just seeing those two numbers on the on my dorm room and the simplicity of the dorms. Once you get over that after five minutes, you know, it's like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, everything's stripped away, you're here for you. I've said this before, but I just think that everything I had thought before was very surface. And this really enabled me to actually see what my childhood was. I said to my teachers in my pre-process phone call with them that oh, I, I don't have any trauma. Other people have trauma, not me. I've had, I, I, my parents were great. Everything's amazing. And they said something to me that did not make sense to me at the time. But then during the process became very clear, which was trauma is very relative. Everyone experiences trauma, but in the very relative terms. I always thought trauma was someone who had you know, suffered something terrible. And you realize through the process that there are many traumatic events that happen to you as a child, and they really have quite a f- profound impact on who you end up becoming and shaping your personalities and your patterns. And I think that's what going into my childhood and recounting events made me realize there were traumatic events in my childhood. And, you know, I've now remember all of them. It can go from the big events, like we had a house um, that we had lived in for 10, 12 years, and that house was stolen from us. And we were evicted from that house. And because of that event, my parents broke up and it was a huge moment of shame. And that was what propelled me to go live in Australia. I wanted to get away from that sense of shame that my family had failed in a sense. And um, it's a bit of a long story, but the short version is, is my dad couldn't get the house remortgaged. So he signed ownership of the house over to his sister and he would pay her the money. And she sold the house, kept the money and evicted us. And this is my mom is a dog trainer. We had seven German shepherds and, uh, you know, I'm the oldest of four brothers. And so the family were just scattered. My mom went to live in council house. My dad went to live in a small apartment, everything. And my brothers went off to university, but our, our home base, everything was just taken and it ended up being like a four year court case between my dad and his sister that he eventually lost. It was just a terribly awful moment in my childhood, but to remember big events like that, and then juxtaposing them against very small minor events that actually had an even bigger impact on me. I think, you know, having that moment to really show up for yourself and to really have a moment to look inward and to remember a lot came up for me. It was really fascinating. And also to check in with yourself as well. That was the one thing I really appreciated about Hoffman was just actually checking in with you and <laughs> checking in with and being able to understand these as often as the four parts of yourself, the quadrinity, and just being able to check in with yourself and have time for yourself. The, the, these things were really, really helpful in terms of accessing the past as well and the memories. When I'm curious of how developing your artistic voice, right? Kind of taking responsibility for your life and events and finding your voice again, 
how that transpired during your week at Hoffman? Well, I think the biggest takeaway and the biggest lesson and realization that I had was that I didn't love myself. <laughs> like it sounds so ridiculous to say, but like I actually really didn't love myself at all. I had a lot of self-hatred, had a lot of shame, and I didn't have much, I didn't even know what compassion meant, frankly. I didn't know what forgiveness meant. I've always been told you're just like your father or you're just like your mother, you know, all these things. And to understand what that was and where that came from and to really break down the things that I was most unhappy with in my life, these patterns I would go into, these feelings of anger, these feelings of frustration, these, these feelings of failure, and then realizing that actually probably most definitely all stem from this feeling I had that I wasn't good enough. I never had an education, so I shouldn't be a top tier director. Uh, I winged it as a kid, so I don't belong in the same room. I shouldn't be winning the, that movie instead of that other filmmaker who went to Harvard or Yale or whatever. And then realizing, no, no, I am good enough. <laughs> uh, you know, and I love myself and I need to treat myself with a lot more love. And also, like, I started to recognize the patterns that I had from my parents, but I started to realize that it wasn't their fault. And I truly forgave them and I truly had compassion. And I realized all the issues I had around my, with my mom and with my dad and the breakup of the house and the shame that I felt. Through the process, I was really able to go into that and realize how it, it truly isn't their fault. And to realize that one of the reasons that I hadn't been able to be the man I wanted to be, to physically be the man I wanted to be, to emotionally be the man I wanted to be, to be the artist that I wanted to be, was I had touched upon that sense of who I really was during my last film, but I didn't know who that was. That was just a fleeting moment. To really find out who I was uniquely inside my right road and my right path, and then to bring that person out and all of a sudden, I just felt that I'm good enough. Like one of the most profound shifts in my work that I had after Hoffman, and I, I say this to anyone who is considering going that as an artist, is that before Hoffman, I always felt I had to collaborate with someone. You know, I had to collaborate as a writer or in a, as a producer with somebody else. And I'd spent the last year and a half kind of working with other people to try and write this script that's based on my childhood in a way. And after Hoffman, within two weeks, I finished the whole thing by myself. And it was like the plug was, I suddenly had this plug that had been pulled out of me and it all just came out. And I knew what I was doing was good. And I knew I was good enough. And I think that all came from understanding that I love myself and that I'm worthy. When you talk about who you are inside, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, loving yourself and, and knowing you have worth. And I, and I thank Hoffman for that, the process, because that, that was the most important thing that I got from, from it in that sense. And, and then from there, so much, so many other things have happened. When hearing just this theme through adulthood, childhood, I mean, both childhood and into adulthood of, I don't belong, where do I belong? And it sounds like you ultimately, through self-love, through self-worth, I am good enough, found true belonging, but in yourself. Yeah. 
See, when you peel back the layers, <laughs> it's kind of this cyclical conversation we're having is that I didn't need to go to a film studio to belong. I didn't need to escape England and go to Australia or live in America to belong. I didn't need to put all my hopes and aspirations in a box called USA to belong. I didn't need to make movies. I belong because I'm me. <laughs> I'm here and I exist. And I'm a dad. And I realized, that I, you know, I'm not here to create. It's, that's a bullshit term. I'm, I'm here. And I want to feel good about whatever it is I do. And whether that's going out with my family, whether that's writing or making a film, whatever it is, I just want to feel good and know it's coming from the right place. And I want to use my voice. People would always say I'm very loud. And I think that was because I wasn't being heard. But now I feel like I don't need to project myself in such a way to be heard because I don't need to be heard. I don't need to prove anything. I'm kind of cool with it. Uh, you, know? Uh, you know, so that, that, that was kind of the, the echo of Hoffman afterwards. And the other magical thing is that I've met 10 to 15 people that have been to Hoffman since I came back. And each one of those were realizations. I could hear the way they were talking. And I would just say, have you been to Hoffman? And they'd be like, oh my God, yeah, I went 10 years ago. And it would just be so funny how expansive the community is. And I must have met so many people in the past that went and I didn't realize it. But now you realize, and there's like a brother and a sisterhood between ex-graduates. Uh, it's amazing. I know you can't see me, but I, um, I've got a huge smile on my face because I, I got a front row ticket to watch your transformation and see you and remember those first days and then really hear you speak about it. I'm just so thrilled for you. And I thank you so much for your vulnerability and, and sharing your story with us. I have to thank, look, I think everyone who goes to Hoffman feels incredibly tied to the teachers that they had. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm no different. I was so grateful for yourself, uh, Alyssa, Marissa, Drew. It was so amazing. And I can't thank you enough, Liz. And thank you for letting me share my childhood and my, my story here. And I just, um, I'm really grateful for Hoffman. And I, and I can't wait eventually to do part two. And to, and to explore deeper. Well, we welcome you whenever. <laughs> Thanks again, Richard. Thank you, Liz. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love in themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.